Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What matters most? What do we need to change? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. According to an old Native American proverb, those who tell the stories rule the world. Well, joining me today is someone who believes in the power of storytelling, so much so she's using it to improve leadership in business. Gabrielle Dolan, welcome to Short Black. Good to have you with us. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, you are a thought leader. You advise big business on good, strong leadership. But here's someone that failed her final year of English. So how does that work? It's the, uh, it keeps you humble, that's for sure. So um, when I write books, people go, oh, my, you're amazing, you've written books. And I was like, you know what, if you've got a good editor, if you've got some good ideas and you've got a good editor, you can write some books. So, yeah, I'm sure Mrs Bennett's would be very surprised, who was my English teacher. Have you ever caught up with her? No, she's probably dead, but she oh. might not be. But you know when you know when you think your teachers are really old, like you think they're about eighty, and, yeah. and they were probably only about thirty-five. Yeah. But yeah, so I'm not sure if she's still around. Do you pinch yourself that you've woken up here? I do, I do. I'm still close with a lot of school friends, and they they sort of go with all due respect. How are you doing what you're doing? How are you making a living out of teaching people stories? So it is. I hate to use the word lucky because I know there's a lot of work, but I'm very grateful that it's all worked out the way it has. For you, it's all about the power of storytelling, Mm. teaching people how to be a storyteller. Why is that so important? Look, I discovered, I I used to work at National Australia Bank and I sort of, I sort of saw around me that the really great leaders that I thought were really inspiring and I wanted to work with were sharing stories and sharing personal stories and a bit of vulnerability. And I would go see speakers, you know, conferences, speakers after speakers, and the really great speakers were sharing stories. I just noticed that when people communicate through stories, there's a greater connection, you understand their message, you remember it. And too many people in business think, well, works, works, personal, personal, don't mix it. And they just stick with facts and logic and data and bullet points and PowerPoints. And it's so boring. And nothing sticks. Nothing sticks. And they end up saying nothing and people don't remember anything. So, yeah, it's annoying. It's annoying. So your focus on storytelling has led you to be the author of at least three books. You've been nominated as a finalist in the Telstra Businesswoman of the Year in the leadership category. Yeah, well, that that was Australia's business book of the year. So wow. my latest book, Real Communication, was the final three of the leadership book of the year, which again is um, yeah, pretty pinching myself around about that as well. You must be doing something right. Yeah, look, I, I, I clearly, hopefully, I think I'm tapping. A lot of people say to me, I'm so refreshingly authentic. And I think that's what people want to see. And that's actually my message to business leaders is just drop the facade. You don't have to have the answers to everything. You don't have to be bulletproof just because you've got the leadership title because people respond to authenticity. So be more of that. 
I generally find that people are elevated to the level of incompetence as opposed to promoted to the level of competence. Mm. So often leaders wake up in a pickle because they're not always struggling with the imposter syndrome, Mm. but they're confronted when they can't do something or don't know how. Yeah, well, when you look at how people are promoted, most of the times, nearly probably all of the time, people are promoted on their technical ability. So they're really good at their job, whatever they do, whether it's banking or technology or finance. And then they're in leadership roles and some senior leadership roles, and it becomes less about their technical capability It becomes about how they can communicate, how they can influence people, how they can engage people. And that's a whole new set of skills that some of them just aren't up to. Every senior manager I've ever met says the most annoying thing about an executive position is really you are managing people. Mm, That's the vast majority of your job. I think the really good CEOs get that their job is communicating to people and just be out there communicating. Yes, they've got to make the tough decisions, but they're managing people and suddenly their expertise is not irrelevant but doesn't mean as much as it used to and their ability to manage, lead people is what counts. You've been in the workforce for a number of years and you've worked in senior positions. You've got an MBA, you're an an author, but you're also out there advising top shelf companies, not just in Australia, but around the world. What are the attributes of a good leader? I think the attributes of a good leader is showing vulnerability, admitting when they're wrong. I mean, you know, we've seen the latest with the Royal Commission and the banks and like just even the latest with Westpac. It's not even not taking responsibility soon enough for their problems. So I think the ability to do that. I actually did some work with a company in Vietnam and the CEO, he was an American, but he had founded a company in Vietnam. And he said he had a revelation with leadership that every time something went wrong, he would take responsibility for it. So, you know, maybe I didn't communicate that properly. If decisions are made, then he's going, well, maybe I didn't create a culture where that right decision was made. And I think if leaders genuinely step into that more, we would get better leaders because, you know, what we're seeing now with the banks is they're saying it's processes and systems or rogue people. It's actually a culture. It's a culture of arrogance that has driven this. And um, I think more CEOs need to go, well, I need to take responsibility for that. Your entire focus is through storytelling you Mm. find authentic leadership but a lot of people might bristle at the concept of being a storyteller I mean I think that's quite an art how do you make that relevant to everyday people who find themselves in a position of management or leadership yeah so first of all I do agree it's an art I think it's an absolute art I might be a bit biased because my job is teaching people how to do it properly but it's a skill and some people are naturally better at it than others but everyone can get better at it It's not about coming up with, you know, your story or your brand story. It's really about if you need to communicate a message, and the message could just be around teamwork or innovation or diversity and inclusion, you can have all the facts and figures around that. But what's a personal story that you could share that either communicates the message or shows your passion towards it? Can you give me an example of when there's been good leadership through storytelling and it doesn't cross over into an uncomfortably personal story? Yeah, look, my rule is you go with your day-to-day stories. I can give you an example because I think this is a really cool example. So I worked with a leader and her name was Anne and one of her values was doing the right thing. So companies have these values and they're normally on a wall, but you can't bring a value to life, I don't think, without stories. 
So I sort of worked with her and I go, when you say doing the right thing, what does it mean? And she broke it down to a few things. And then she said, but what it really means is doing the right thing all the time and not just when it suits us. So then I go, okay, well, what's a personal story you could share that would demonstrate that? And the story she came up with was about her dad. So she said, my dad was a professional swimmer. In the 60s, my dad was a professional swimmer. And he got to the point where he was that good, he was trying out for the Australian swim squad to see if he could make the Olympics. On the day of the race, he was apparently winning his race. And when he got to the end to do the tumble turn, he slightly misjudged and he missed the wall. Now, this was way before technology, so there was no sensors, but they had judges. And he had to make a split-second decision. Does he go back and touch the wall or does he just keep going, knowing that they probably didn't see he didn't touch the wall? He made a decision to go back and touch the wall and he came fourth, I think. He didn't, you know, you don't really recover from that. And Anne shares that story with her team to say, when I think of doing the right thing, I think of my dad and we will come out, cross our own, go back and touch the wall moments and I invite you to consider what my dad would do. So she uses that story to say, this is what it means to me. And through that story, she gets the team buying into it. They fully committed to it. She has said, it comes to decisions, can we do A or B? And people start to go, well, B, we don't technically have to do A. We don't, we're not legally obliged to do A. And then someone will just go, this is our go back and touch the wall moment. What's the right thing to do? And she goes, well, everyone says, well, A is the right thing to do. So I think something like values, you cannot communicate without stories. What's some other examples of stories that have real cut through where you're not really being too vulnerable in that leadership moment either? Yeah, okay. Because it's a fine line you have yeah, to walk, isn't it? It is. And it, it is the day-to-day ones that can be really powerful. Let me give it another example, which I think is a great example of a really simple, simple day-to-day story that really isn't even showing vulnerability as such. Again, had a leader, they were going through some really significant business change and the message he wanted to keep getting across to his team that we're going to need a lot of persistence to get through this. And so the story he shared was about his daughter. He said, earlier this year, my daughter Julia started school and she came home from school really excited the first day saying, daddy, daddy, they got a monkey bars at school. And he noticed that she had blisters all over her hands from the monkey bars and said, Julia, don't go on the monkey bars tomorrow because it will make your blisters worse. And she went, yeah, but dad, I really want to make it to the other side. Julia came home the next day, blisters had all burst, and he said, you were on the monkey bars, weren't you, Julia? He goes, yeah, but I want to make it to the other side. He put Band-Aids on the blisters and again suggested, don't go on the monkey bars. And this went on for about two weeks until Julia came home and said, guess what I did today, Dad? I made it to the other side. And he shares that story by going, you know, when I think of the change we're about to embark on, I, I think of Julia. And imagine what we could achieve for our customers if we all had the determination to make it to the other side. I just love that story because it's such a simple, simple story. But here's a senior manager saying, this is what it means to me. We just need to get through and get to the other side. When you talk about stories for work, you break it down into four different types. They are triumph, tragedy, tension and transition. Let's start with triumph. Triumph is sharing stories about the good things you've achieved, but you don't want to be bragging about this or the good things that your team have achieved, or, you know, if it's even a story in the community, the the good things that you've achieved with your school community or something like that. So it is acknowledging the good things you've done, which women tend not to do a lot of. So there's That's what you found? Yeah, I've just found that there's a lot of research that comes out that women prove, men promote, and this is generally speaking. So women never want to feel like they're bragging, so they don't talk about the good things they've done at all. And I go, there are ways to talk about the good things you've done. 
without sounding like you're just bragging for bragging's sake. It is an art form. Yeah, it is. What about tragedy? I think some of these can be some of your most powerful stories. And I know I called it tragedy, but it is things you've regret. The value in sharing them is it shows that you've learnt something. So you could be sharing a story about um, when you stole a Kit Kat from the milk bar when you were 10 because your best friend urged you to do it. And you look back and you think that's something I've regretted all my life. So sharing stories like that show to the person that whether it's honesty or integrity, that that's really important to you. And the regret you still have about that or the lesson you learned from it shows it's sort of ironically when you're sharing a story about when you didn't live a value and how much you regret it shows that you actually do truly live that value. What do you mean when you talk about stories of tension? Tension is when you're normally torn between two values. So it could just be you've got a great job opportunity, but it means you have to uproot your family. And it's just, it's how you balance the tension of values. You know, we can all talk about values and we can say, oh, these are my 10 values, but you truly only know a value when two of them are in tension and you choose one over the other. And then finally, you talk about stories of transition. Whether you've moved countries or whether you've moved careers, they can be really powerful stories because, again, it's, you know, what made you do it. They could be some of your signature stories about your passion, why you went from here to here. That model is just a way of helping people find stories because what I find a lot of people go, I don't have any stories, I'm just normal. And it was like normal's good because we all relate to normal. So what you try to do is unearth the normal stories and mm. make people feel like they're entitled to be leaders. Yeah, well, and unorthodox the normal stories that they can share, which then helps them be more relatable and human. We sort of still have this weird thing. We're in Australia and we think we don't, you know, respect hierarchy, but we do. If someone's a senior leader, we sort of go, oh, they're so good, they don't have the challenges I do. But then they start sharing a story about getting in trouble off their mum or, or still scared of their mum, you know, even they're 50, which we all are, or their kids going, what would you know? So it just shows that they're normal. Through all the workshops you've done with various ASX-listed companies and power groups around the world, what have you found are the key differences between male and female leaders? I think women tend to step into vulnerability more. So women tend to share more personal stories. When men do it, what I find, sometimes the emotion can really catch them by surprise. You know, you'll be working with senior execs and they'll share a story about their childhood and then all of a sudden go, oh, oh, I don't know what's happening. And I sometimes have a little bit of joke and go, it's called emotion. It's okay. <laughs> don't be scared. Yeah, don't be scared. Go it's there. all right. Go there. Yeah. And it's, I think women, women more comfortably well up, I guess, for the want of a better word. And again, generally speaking, men would be more reluctant to show that side of them. But ironically, when they do, you know, it's the whole, when things go against norm, everyone goes, oh, he got emotional. That's so good. It's like... So, yeah, it's weird. Yeah, they're two judgments always, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. I've become aware of a, a group called um, The Hunger Project mm -hmm. uh, and they teach leadership through, I guess, vulnerability but really taking leaders out of their comfort zone into third world areas and they teach leadership through, you know, impoverished circumstances. Mm. And you've got villages in remote parts of India teaching banking executives leadership. And that just doesn't seem to make sense. And yet the reality is they taught them things like courage, values and integrity and how you can simply apply that to your everyday.
Leadership can be found anywhere, can't it? Oh, absolutely. You certainly don't wait for a title of leadership to show leadership. But you're right in that I think when you look at leadership, what is it? It is courage. It is showing vulnerability. It's integrity. So although they're like people skills and you can learn some amazing stuff from what's happening with the Hunger Project in remote communities or, um, you know, our Indigenous communities I remember reading probably about a decade ago a group of elders in Fitzroy Crossing where they banned alcohol. What an amazing learning for a change management case, how you can get a community led by a handful of female elders to completely influence and change the way that community is. Is it so often just that we all end up in our own lane, narrowly focused on our everyday that we don't actually take the blinkers off and stand outside, find some perspective? Is that often the problem? I think it is. I was actually chatting to a colleague last night about this, that we are so busy and I think any form of self-growth, you need reflection time. You need to take some time out and, and really reflect on, well, could I have done that better? How is that different? Who can I learn off? And when we are so busy... And, you know, leaders and CEOs are so busy, they just don't have the time to do that. But part of me thinks it's their job and it's their responsibility to continually grow. So they need to find the time to do that. So you travel the world teaching leadership through communication and storytelling. What's your view on Australian leadership at the moment? I think it's not in a good place. I think the recent Royal Commissions, you know, I worked at NAB for 17 years. The banks are some of my major clients. I come across the vast majority of people wanting to do the right thing and it almost breaks my heart to see how collectively they've managed to get it so, so wrong. I don't, I don't know if there's a word for synergy, the, the opposite for synergy, where collectively they've just stuffed it up and it's, it's a long way back. My concern is I think they don't realise how bad it is, the level of distrust, and they need to do a lot more work on rebuilding trust. There's a lot of good people in the banking system. There's a huge amount of good people in there. But it's going to take a long way and a long time for them to recover. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of my best friends are still working in banks. And like I said, they're my major clients. People want to do the right thing. But I think there's all these little things that sometimes they think there's nothing wrong with them. And you go, that's sort of not right. Is a conundrum for leadership then, if we're using banks as an example, Mm -hmm. the reality is it is going to take a long time. But leaders need short-term hits. They've got incentives. And they may not be there to recoup the win. How do you get around that? Yeah, well, I think that's that's the problem with all these short-term incentives that CEOs have. I mean, it's the way our political system is too. We, we're Absolutely. looking for leadership, but we give them three years. And if you don't deliver in three years, you're out. Or we even give them to the next survey. So we, we need to set up, and I don't know the answer to this, but we reward people on short-term results. When we're on leadership, we're looking for long-term visions and it just doesn't happen when you reward people on the wrong behaviour. I remember listening to your chat that you gave to the Women in Focus and you just reminded me, you talked about STIs. Yeah. Can you tell me that story? (laughs) I do this thing called Jargon-Free Fridays and it's the unnecessary use of acronyms. So again, in business, we have defaulted to this language of jargon and acronyms, which doesn't actually communicate very well. So I do talk about, for example, every acronym, there's a different meaning, like SME. Some people think subject matter experts, some people small to medium enterprise. If you're in banking, it's small to medium enterprise. Yeah, exactly. And when I say STIs, it was like everyone thinks 
sexually transmitted infections where I grew up my entire career STIs were short-term incentives and it was sort of like that's a really embarrassing question ask someone in a job interview what STIs they currently have (laughs) and you wonder why HR keep knocking at your door. So acronyms are something you should avoid. Yeah it's the unnecessary use of them if everyone understands what they mean good but I find in business just because something has three words in it doesn't mean we need to reduce it to an acronym. The word acronym only entered the English dictionary in 1943. And the reason it entered then is because during World War II, that's when acronyms started to be widely used. We would communicate in acronyms, so when they were intercepted by the enemy, the enemy couldn't understand it. So when you think about it, that why have we have adopted a system in business that was invented, pretty much, to confuse people? people. (laughs) And we think it's effective communication, and it's just not. It's lazy. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. We've had so many women through this audio booth who have all confessed to struggling with the imposter syndrome. You meet leaders around the world. Is it a common anecdote? It absolutely is. And I think even though women probably suffer from it more than men, men still suffer from it. And I think we probably all do at some times, some more than others, but it can be crippling for them. It it holds them back from throwing their hat in the ring for a new job. Once they're aware, they can help themselves. I also think if you're in a leadership position and you are managing females, it's being aware that they might suffer imposter syndrome. So it's really encouraged them to say, no, I want you to apply for this job because I think you'll be good at it. And when they go, oh, no, no, keep encouraging them because that's sometimes what all they need. What about for those listening who say, I'm not in a leadership position, so why does storytelling mean anything to me or why should it? I see storytelling as a day-to-day communication and influencing skill. So yes, it's a leadership skill because part of, well, a big part of leadership is communicating and influencing. But I've written a book on storytelling for job interviews. If you at all need to communicate a message or influence an outcome, storytelling can work. So, I mean, it works as for parents. So a job interviewer, just giving a presentation, talking to your team, trying to get a pay rise. Any situation where you need to communicate and influence better, a story can help. I can't imagine going in for a job interview and then telling a story about myself. When you look at behavioural event interviewing, which is sort of the norm with storytelling, they're normally going, tell me a time when you, and the reality is you're sharing stories. Now, what we tend to do is only rely on work-related stories because we think that's what they want to hear. But perhaps they want to hear about something you've done organising the school fate or whatever. Again, for women especially, if they've been out of the workplace for a while and they don't have any relevant work-related stories... In a job interview, what people are trying to get is your values. 
there's a culture fit. That's what they're trying to do. So share stories that demonstrate your values and your capabilities, but they don't necessarily need to be in the workplace stories. What if you find that you're not a very good storyteller? Now, how do you know that you you're buy not one very of my good? Books. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from buying your book, yeah. give us the tips to identify when you're off the rails. Yeah, look, maybe that 40 minute mark. Do you think that one story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> that when the story's still going at 40 minutes, stop. So, I mean, that's one thing. Keep your stories really short. The reality is, if people want to find out more information, they will ask you. So, be really, really clear on the message. Don't try to put too many messages into a story. So one message per story. Make them really succinct, one to two minutes. Use real words. A lot of people use corporate jargon and it was like real, you know, they'll say I was anxious as opposed to saying I was really scared. And you can see how really scared I can connect and engage with more than just being anxious and be authentic. Just make sure they're true and be prepared to show some vulnerability. Surely body language is pretty important in the process. Yeah, it is. What I find, though, is when you retell a personal story, you don't just retell it. You actually relive it. And it's amazing how then the body language becomes really natural. And I don't even think you can remember staring at someone like, because you're so in the moment Mm. that you're not actually making eye contact because you're trying to get the story right. Yeah. So then you've lost all those verbal cues. Yeah. But although when it's a personal story and you relive it, it sort of just comes out. So I've seen some what I'd consider dry presenters doing a presentation and they get to the point where they're sharing their story and it's like they come alive. It's like, and you can see it in their eyes. So yeah, I think that just happens naturally when you share a personal story. You must be doing something right. You just landed a two-week Obama Leadership Foundation opportunity in Malaysia. Mm. What does that mean to you? Because the Obama Foundation is quite a coup. Yeah, it was one of those things when they approached me, because I've been doing this for 15 years. and yeah, And 15 years ago, people would laugh at me, like storytelling in business, give me a break. And now, it's probably only in the last few years it's really gained respect and credibility as a Why business Why do you think tool. that is? Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think the younger generation are screaming out for a different way of leadership. I think things like TED Talks have legitimised storytelling. So to get the gig at the Obama Foundation, it's really, I mean, there That's probably cool. can be no other way to go, you've landed, this has landed. I I actually thought earlier this year I did some training for a company on Wall Street in New York and that was part of my, wow, I'm teaching storytelling on Wall Street. But the Obama Foundation, and they're doing amazing work with 200 emerging leaders and having the opportunity to give them a skill that will be able to communicate what they're doing more effectively is, um, it's actually quite humbling. It's humbling and excited all in one. So they're focusing on emerging world leaders in a broad spectrum of industries. Mm. And yet what I find remarkable is they found Gabrielle Dolan from Australia to teach them about leadership through storytelling. What it also says to me is that all leaders of all diversities end up with tunnel vision and need someone to remind them to find perspective. Yeah, I think... I think most do. I think we all do at some stage and it's always good to have someone to help you look at something differently. I think it's always good to do that. It's, and again, that's the, the growth and self-awareness and looking at other people to help you grow. When you say millennials are screaming out for a new style of leadership, is that anecdotal? I can't probably give you some any facts and figures, but a lot of the research is saying they want to be involved more in decisions. They want to be involved in purpose. 
So I think having leaders saying, I don't know the answers, what do you think, is it's sort of a relief for the leader, but it's also a way to engage the um, millennials. And that cascade approach to communication that we probably all grew up to, where it started at the top and gradually made its way down, this generation is used to having information and having it immediately and it transparent, and they expect that from their leaders too. So again, the push to get more authentic communication is there. Do you find a pushback from a certain generation about constantly hearing what the millennials want? I did about 10 years ago. So 10 years ago, it was constantly, you know, they're not prepared to do the crap jobs for 15 years that we did. And I just go, good on them. And they just want purpose from day one. And so when I'd be working with the leaders, it was like whinging about them is not going to change it. And if you don't change the way you lead, they will go and work for a leader that inspires them and you're going to lose talent. So you you need to change the way you lead and communicate. And regardless of what you think about the brand millennial or the demographic, they are the emerging workforce and it's the reality we have to come well, to Well, they're the biggest group in the workforce now. So it's like I think we're talking pretty much 40 and under so it's over 50% of the workforce. And in some industries, like the professional service firm, it's like 70 or 80% of the workforce. So not even emerging anymore, it's the workforce. Now, you're a mum of two kids. I am. And you're a world leader in thought leadership <laughs> uh, who failed English in a final year. So how do you encourage your kids to get to the finish line and graduate or whatever it is they're doing when they turn around and say, well, mum, you didn't actually do it. Look, you got through. Yeah. I made the mistake of telling them, but I failed English. Ironically, my daughter, who's about to turn 19 and studying global politics and international studies, who I'm taking to the Obama Foundation, so mother of the year right there. Yeah, very cool. She did the complete opposite to me. So I was actually a really, really good student until about year 10, and I don't know what happened, but probably like everything, you just get too cool for school, and mm. I, the, my last couple of years were really bad. Alex did the complete opposite, where she, she wouldn't study, she wouldn't do homework, luckily she was pretty smart, and she just kept saying, Mum, it's only the last two years that matter, and she got a 91 ATAR, and it was like, Pfft. so she's done the opposite, and my other daughter, Jess, wants to be a vet, so she takes study very seriously, so... I clearly role modelled the opposite of what not what to do. What advice do you give to parents who are struggling with kids? So the advice I give to kids and as my kids is just do what you want, do what you love and the rest will take care of it itself. To parents, I mean, I don't know, I often get the question, do your kids know what they want to do? And I was like, no. And like, who knows? And even if they do know, it may not come come to fruition. So I think it's as parents, just stop worrying about the career path for your kids. And if they're doing what they love, then they'll end up in a good place. And no one at 16 knows what they're doing. I mean, no, no I one didn't. at 30 knows what we're doing. Like, And even if you think, you know, I, I wanted to be a graphic designer and didn't get into the course because I failed English. <laughs> and then went and became a computer operator, which wasn't even on the radar. And then now ended up running storytelling training for the Obama Foundation. It doesn't work out, but if you're doing what you love, it will work out. Not to break down your IP, but walk us through what that leadership training looks like. So, you know, I'm, I'm the head of NAB or Westpac mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, one of the major ASX companies, and I decide that my executive leadership team need to understand storytelling or they need to be more effective communicators. Yeah, so I either do a half day or a full day, which is pretty standard. Talk about the power of storytelling. So get, get them to sort of think why when they're just using logic, it hasn't worked. So building a few aha moments where they go, ah, oh, that's why it's not been working as well. 
I then get them to be really clear on the message they're trying to communicate. So sometimes we just go with the company values. What I find amazing is I go, so what does that mean to you? What does integrity mean to you? And they sit there and go, I actually haven't thought about it this much before. But it's their job to communicate the values, but they haven't thought about it. Then taking them through the process of where to find these personal stories that they could use. So you know, getting over the thing, I don't have any stories or no one would be interested in my stories. And then teaching them how to start their story, what to put in the middle and most importantly, how to end it. I mean, just even things like, don't start your story with let me tell you a story. Like, I was like, please don't. (laughs) And don't end your story with the moral of the story is. I've developed this framework that I know works that helps them communicate their story more effectively. What's the framework? Well, beginning is you start with time and place. Like when I was a kid, I grew up on a farm, time and place. This morning at gym, time and place. The middle, you've constantly got to decide what you put in, what you put out. And that's why you've got to be really clear on the message, the one message. And then the the ending is sort of broken up into a few things. I call it the bridge. So how do you take someone from that personal? And it could be something as simple as, you know, I'm sharing this with you because it reminds me of our value integrity. And then the link is the call to action without being direct. So things like imagine what we could achieve if we all did this, or I invite you to consider how you would adopt this. So it's ending in a really respectful way. I think done well, storytelling is a really respectful way to communicate and it's not telling people what they should be doing. Or how to think. Yeah, or how to think. Just in, give them the option to think of something differently. It's how you make someone think something different, feel something different or do something different without telling them. And it's true, every story should have a beginning, middle and end. Yeah, it should. We all know people that tell stories without an end. And it's like, (laughs) don't be that person. (laughs) Even the never-ending story had an end. That eye roll is there for a reason. Absolutely. Yeah. Gabrielle, best of luck with the Obama Leadership Foundation. It's been a real joy to meet you again and explore what it is and why you do it. And you clearly do it so well. Thanks so much. Thank you, Sandra. You have been listening to Short Black a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. The Professor and the Hack. Accessible politics with just a touch of depth. I'm Hugh Rimmington. And I'm Peter Van Onselen. You can find us, The Professor and the Hack, wherever you find quality podcasts.